Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. God the Father does not save or speak to us from a distance. He sends to us his Son. He sends to us salvation and life. He wants to be with us. The Father desires communion with us in the person of Jesus, his only begotten Son, who now sits enthroned in heaven, fully man and fully God. And with that, we now have the Father's ear. He hears our prayers. Like a good Father, he hears our cries and our groanings. And like a good Father, he gives us just what we need at just the right time. He is the eternal Father, and yet, despite man's sin against him that requires eternal judgment, our Father in heaven has granted us life and salvation, and he has chosen us and adopted us as his covenant children. We can now confidently pray, our Father who art in heaven, and confidently know our Father desires our fellowship and our communion. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the prophet Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. And again, Yahweh spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remaliah, now therefore behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For thus Yahweh spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them, Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for Yahweh who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. We'll turn now to 1 Peter chapter 3. beginning in verse 13. 
And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 29. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over many waters, the glory of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. one denomination or another. It's found among all those who are believers in Christ. 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into Sheol. Uh, <clears throat> the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy, uh, the Holy, let me start again. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we know what is recorded for us in Deuteronomy 8, that Israel was taught a lesson in the wilderness, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we come to you this morning as we begin our thoughts in this Advent season of the light coming into the world to explain who you are to us. As we come to you, we ask that you would give us this day our daily bread, a word from God to convict us, to cleanse us, to build us up, to encourage us, and to send us out working for his kingdom. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's on. Not working? Well. Now can you hear me? There's uh, been a lot of books written uh, in the last couple of decades, I suppose, about being a man. We read one of them, It's Good to Be a Man. Some people liked it, some people didn't like it. There was another one back around uh, 2000, maybe a little later, and that called Wild at Heart. You know, all kinds of manly stuff. There's a famous minister, Scottish. He lived 29 years, and he made a mark on the Christian world unlike most people make a mark. He was known as 
one of the most pious, godly men that walked in Christian circles. This is what he says. What a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Well, so I suppose we could say the same thing about women, correct? So the question is, you know, you think about the way people are measured. Uh, in certain circles, you're measured by how you dress, the kind of money you make. In other circles, you're measured by the things you write and the degrees that you can hang on the wall. But Robert Murray McChain is correct. What a man is on his knees before the Lord, that's what he is and nothing more. Now, I'm guessing that if you're like me and you say, okay, this is how God measures me, or this is a measurement to consider, then uh, probably a lot of us would hang our heads and say, well, you know, really when it comes right down to it, when it comes to prayer, I'm not much of anything. The Christian church today has trouble focusing in prayer, has trouble thinking about the right things to pray for, is myopic when it comes to prayer, focused on self, hedonistic, materialistic, health-oriented, but certainly not very God-focused. Well, when Jesus came into the world, he was the light of the world. When you come to the end of the book of John, he warns the people, walk while you have light so that the darkness will not overtake you. Because he, the light, was leaving. Of course, he left the light behind, and that's what we are, the light of the world. There is no way that all of us combined or anyone singly could possibly measure up to the light that Christ is, because Christ never sinned, and we do. But there's something to think about <clears throat> when the disciples said to Jesus, after he finished praying, Luke chapter 11. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Now, I got to thinking about it, and I wonder, well, why in the world would they say that? You know, they're really good Jewish boys. They know the Psalms, and the Psalm is mostly prayers. And surely they pray them, as we would say, religiously. But they say, Teach us to pray. And I take it then that there's something different about the way Jesus prayed. Because they asked him after he finished praying, teach us to pray. And so for the next four weeks, and then finally on Christmas Day, we're going to look at what we call the Lord's Prayer. And... Uh, so we'll be taking it in five sections. And we're going to assume that when Jesus came into the world, this is how he prayed. Now, of course, he spent long nights in prayer, and this prayer can be said quickly. It doesn't take very long. And so we have to remember that there certainly are expansions 
to each of the thoughts and the petitions that are in the prayer, but these are the categories around which one should pray. And when you read Paul's uh, prayers, if you haven't read D.A. Carson's book called A, uh, A Spiritual Reformation on Paul's Prayers, you ought to read it because Paul didn't pray the way we pray. No, he prayed the way Jesus prayed. So I, uh, you know, anybody who's anybody, so now you know I'm nobody because I haven't done this. Anybody who's anybody has written a book on the Lord's Prayer, you know. It's like you when you climb to having a radio name or you've written some books and there are certain things you have to do. You have to write one on marriage, even though there are a gazillion on marriage already. And you have to write one on prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And so there are lots of books to look at, and they all have a little different approach, and they're all pretty good. And I looked at four of them this time around, and I rather enjoyed looking at them, quite frankly. One I enjoyed was by J.R. Packer. It's just a, just a short book. J.R. Packer's been a real gift to the church. He said, you know, just as when you go to examining light, you have to consider the seven colors on the light spectrum. So when you go to talking about prayer, there are seven things you must keep in mind. I'm going to read them to you. Approaching God in adoration and trust. That's what prayer is. Approaching God in adoration and trust. Acknowledging His work and His worth in praise and worship. That's what prayer is. Admitting sin and seeking pardon. That's what prayer is. Asking that needs be met for ourselves and for others. That's what prayer is. I like this one. Arguing with God for blessing as wrestling Jacob did in Genesis 32. God loves a good argument. Well, now, if you read the Psalms, you can see that that is true. This is one that's really important, and uh, maybe some of us are settled in it, but most of us maybe have a ways to go. Accepting from God one's own situation as he shaped it. And adhering to God in faithfulness through thick and thin. We're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 6. And what I want to do is uh, just read the prayer and then make some comments.
for our sakes right at the moment, we will just start at verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First petition, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, second petition. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, third petition. Give us this day our daily bread, fourth petition. And forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors, fifth petition. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Sixth petition. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what Jesus taught them to pray. It's very simple. It's very short. But now what I want to do is I want to step back and I want to think some thoughts about this prayer. And this morning, I'm only going to deal with hallowed be thy name. But if you just think about this prayer, it comes in a context. And the context is a kingdom context. In uh, the previous uh, section of Matthew, just before the Sermon on the Mount, it says in verse 17, chapter 4, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 23 of that same chapter, it says, and Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he was healing. So it comes in a context. And when you see the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom context. That's caused some people to think that the Sermon on the Mount is not applicable to us today because some people think we're not in the kingdom. But that is, uh, is short-sighted and ill-thought-out. It is, we are in the kingdom. We know it because Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father and he is right now in the process of making all his enemies subject under his feet. And when he's done away with the last enemy, which is death, and that will be done away with through resurrection, then he will hand the kingdom over to his father. So when Jesus sat down, there were different ways to think about the beginning of the kingdom, but when Jesus sat down, then the kingdom started. And the kingdom's been growing and growing and stretching wider and wider and wider. Well, the kingdom covers the whole globe of the earth. Not everyone knows that yet. Did you see this week we're now at 8 billion people on the earth? About 3.5 billion of those people on this earth name Christianity as theirs. Now, whatever you think of that, it's, it's a lot of people. Truly, all of them will not be resurrected 
into the presence of Jesus. I don't know what the percentage is. Some people are more broad-minded than others, but what we do know is one has to truly confess Christ to be in that category. So this prayer, the kingdom, I mean, the, the prayer comes in a kingdom context. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And just within the Beatitudes, Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to them. Verse 10, Blessed are those who have been uh, persecuted for the sake of righteousness, and for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, let me just stop and say one more thing so we're all on the same page. When you come to the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark, they're going to use the expression kingdom of God. In Matthew, uh, it's the kingdom of heaven. They are one in the same, although in past years we have muddled that up in our thinking so that we think there's a kingdom of God that resides on earth but the church is going to go into a kingdom of God that resides in heaven. That just simply is not true. There is one kingdom. Jesus is king over that kingdom. And that kingdom, when it's consummated, when it comes to full fruition, will reside on earth because heaven will be joined to earth. Skip down to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then just uh, skip over to chapter 6. And right here, kind of in the middle of uh, the whole sermon, in verse 33, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Then come to the conclusion of the sermon in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we have the fa famous statement about the gate. And the gate, obviously, is talking about entering into the kingdom or not entering into the kingdom. I'm flipping to find my place. But if you look down in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then when you end up at the very end of the sermon, it doesn't say kingdom, but that's what it's talking about. There are two men. One is wise and one is foolish. And the foolish man builds his house, his temple on the sand. House means temple. That's what the temple's called. It's the house of God. But the wise man builds his house on the rock. And it's a cryptic statement to Jewish people that their house is going to be torn down when troubles come. The Sermon on the Mount is the context of the Lord's Prayer. It is a kingdom prayer.
And it is a prayer that goes on today because the kingdom started and is growing, 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 growing. And one day it will be consummated when every enemy of Jesus is put under his foot. Now, I realize in this room there are different eschatologies. So, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't get excited about that. We all believe this maybe in a little different way, but we all believe it, that Jesus Christ is coming back and the dead will be raised and the kingdom will be forever. The Lord's Prayer is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of the kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I wanted to say that when you are in this context, we sometimes get a little mixed up also because we see, okay, in the context of this kingdom and the gate imagery, there's a narrow gate and there's a big broad gate and only a few people are going to enter the narrow gate and lots of people are going to go to the broad gate out to destruction. And we say, well, so no, no, the kingdom can't keep growing, 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 growing. In fact, a certain theology says, no, it's diminishing, diminishing, diminishing down to the end and boom, then all the people are taken out. But Matthew is a Jewish gospel. And Judaism ended in A.D. 70. It's not going to be resurrected. So, yeah, a few in Judaism. What Romans calls, so all Israel will be saved. Yeah, because when A.D. 70 came, it ended. And out of the vast, huge myriads of myriads of people in Revelation that are going to be, be before the throne of the Lamb. Well, if we looked over the course of history, in comparison, there'll be so many more Gentiles than Jews that it's a few. But, having said all of that, of course, uh, in the end, Jewishness and Gentilishness means nothing. So Paul tells us in the book of Galatians. There are some important observations I'd like you to make with regard to the Lord's Prayer. Number one, the prayer is not individualistic. There is no I and no me in the prayer. None. Instead, the first half of the prayer focuses on God, thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. The second half of the prayer focuses on a group, give us. Not give me. Don't give me my daily bread. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. No individualism in the prayer. What does that tell you? That tells you the people of God are a community. And as we can obviously see from the prayer, if we say our Father, they're more than just a community. They're a family. 
And families are supposed to get along. So no individualism. It's group. Hence the church. So the writers to the Hebrews says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Instead, what do we do? We come to church to encourage one another unto love and good deeds. Of course, this isn't the only place we do it, but this is the place where you have the context of the group. I'm sure there was a lot of encouragement that went off on Thanksgiving as believers got together. But in Hebrews, it's talking about the gathering of the church, and this prayer is a church prayer. So, no individualism, addressing God is the topic of the prayer. Now, uh, one has to say, just in, uh, in, in a little aside, hopefully not too lengthy, it's very easy when we stand up and pray to lose sight of who we're praying to. So when a man stands up in the assembly or is called on to pray, he is to pray for the us. But he's not to pray to the us. He's to pray to God. This prayer is addressed to the Father, our Father. That's an important observation. There are uh, six petitions. And the six petitions, I, I won't take the time because we're going to run out of time. The six petitions can be structured chiastically. You might want to just go home and see if you can do that and say, well, how does it work that way? Six petitions, three to God, three with God's interests, well, it's all God's interests, but three with our interests. And this one is surprising because this is not what you would think today when the church prays. I'm talking about the church at large now. If you read through the New Testament and you read all of Paul's prayers, and you read Peter's prayers, and you read Jesus' prayers, the one thing you do not find, and you don't find it in the Lord's Prayer, except as a, uh, what would you say? Well, it flows out of one of the asides, but it's not directly addressed. There is no prayer for the lost. Now, you would think, that if Jesus is going to teach us how to pray, he would say to us, you pray for the lost. But he doesn't. Like I said, it's in there, it's, but it's not made a main focus. And when you read Paul's prayers, it's not Paul's main focus because the kingdom is composed of the found. And so we're praying to worship God when we gather and we're praying for each other within the community. Okay? Praying the prayer of Jesus. Now I have some things to say under this heading. Praying the prayer of Jesus. Now I'm calling it the prayer of Jesus because I'm assuming he prayed it. With expansion, of course. 
our Father. Well, now, if you look back into the Old Testament and you follow the course of the Old Testament, you basically did not see individuals addressing God as Father. There are occasions where a prophet is calling God the Father of the nation, and God himself sends a message to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn son, so let him go that he might worship me. Of course, that implies fatherhood. And when you get the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant is a covenant in which God says of the one who's going to sit on his throne, the first one was Solomon, the second one, Rehoboam, and on down the line. We will return to Chronicles one of these days. Uh, and then finally, we come down to Jesus Christ. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. But as a whole, in the Old Testament, God was not addressed as father. He was the father of the nation. But in the New Testament, things have changed. And Jesus is telling his disciples to pray this way. Now, he doesn't say, pray my father. He says, pray our father. Because it's a family. He's not just dad of one person. He's dad of all the persons in the family. Our father. And you see, when you read through the Gospels, this is how Jesus addressed his father. He called him father. Uh, I, I didn't read through all the Gospels to check and make sure this was quite true. I read it. Uh, I'm, it's, it's a decent author, so I'm assuming he's correct. The only time Jesus prayed where he didn't say father is when he prayed on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Paul uses the term father and we're called by Jesus also to use the term Father, our Father. Israel did not use that term. That doesn't mean that Israelites weren't justified. It doesn't mean Israelites aren't in heaven today. It doesn't mean anything like that. It means that the, the consummation of what was done in Israel is realized in the New Testament. So it's kind of back here, obscure, a little dark, a little mysterious. But when you come over here to the end, when Jesus dies on the cross and rises again, and now there is the, uh, uh, well, I don't know how to say it to mislead somebody or to make somebody think I'm thinking something or I'm not. But now in the New Testament, we have the true Israel of God. And he is the nation's father, the kingdom's father, the individual's father, the family's father. He's our father. And of course, this is the funny thing. Most Christians don't pray very much.
But when you have a good dad at home, you talk to your dad a lot. And you ask him for things. And in the Sermon on the Mount, when you get to the last chapter, Jesus gives that famous line, ask, knock, and seek. And then he says, for if you being evil know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father. And when we have a Father that we like, who loves us as children, I mean, just thinking about growing up, we had a good relationship. But when it comes to the Lord's Prayer and thinking of God as our Father, we spend precious little time. Mostly our time is in petition. And mostly when it's in petition, it's for things we want. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, of course. It's contained right here in the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus is saying, say, our Father, who art in heaven. You're our heavenly Father. Well, then comes the first petition. Hallowed be thy name. So, uh, you think about the Old Testament, and I'm not going to turn to the passages. You've read them, uh, and, and they all come in a context. But, for example, Isaiah is famous for saying, for the Lord saying, my name is holy. I'm the holy one, the high and lifted up one. I'm holy. And holy is this overarching, well, it's, if we call it an attribute, it's an attribute that affects every attribute of God. He's holy in His graciousness. He's holy in His wrath. And holy, as you know, because each person in this room who professes Christ is called holy. Saints is the same word. Saints by calling. And this word holy etymologically means to be separate from. Or another way to think of it is different. And that's what Christians are. They're different. They're separated from the world. They don't live like the world. They're separated by sin from sin. They don't pursue sin like the world. They're separated unto God. The world's not separated unto God. Christians are separate. They're saints. They're holy. But what does it mean when God's holy? Well, the best way to put it is there's nobody else like him, period. He's, the word holy certainly is used to mean pure, consecrated. For example, a woman who decides not to marry, she's going to be holy in body and spirit. You get the sense then there. And so God is holy. He is not related to sin. His eyes are too pure to look upon sin. He's holy in that sense. But he's also holy in the sense that he's transcendent. He's above everything. He's, he's not like us. First of all, he's a spirit. 
Now Christ has joined us in a body. Before Christ joined us in a body, the triune God is holy, 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 trisagion, three times holy, whether that refers to the three persons of the Trinity. Well, people will debate that, but nevertheless, he's holy. And Isaiah sees the seraphim, or hears the seraphim saying that, when he's at the temple, because the king Uzziah has died after 52 years of reign, and uh, he, he went out uh, in sin. He had a good reign, but he sinned in the end. He was proud, and his heart was lifted up. And Isaiah's looking for direction, and he comes into the temple, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. Holy, 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 they're crying out. God is different for one thing one of the most essential things is god is eternal he's always been always will be he is self-existent nobody in this room is self-existent no one god comes and he decides when our time is up we don't get a choice in it well if you make the choice in that you're probably doing something wrong but was supposed to be laugh, laugh. So God is holy. So, for example, if you if you've read, and if you haven't read it, you should read it. R.C. Sproul's book on the holiness of God. And you know, R.C. Sproul's a logician. He's a philosopher. He's a theologian. He thinks with clarity. And so he says, okay, here's something about the holiness of God. He created everything out of nothing. If there's nothing, can you think of nothing, he said. Can you think of nothing? No, you cannot do it, can you? Try to think nothing. There is such, no such thing as nothing, but there was before God created, there was nothing. And so all our people who say, oh, there's no God, they're saying nothing comes from nothing. Well, of course, that's just irrationality to the utmost. So they say, well, it happens by chance, as R.C. Sproul points out. Well, chance, is chance something? No, chance is not something. Go pick it up. Where do you find it? You can't find chance. But God is holy. And that gives us uh, just, you know, a, a, a little glimpse. All that you look around out there in this vast universe that, that we only know bits and pieces about, God created it. And so, when you say, well, he, he's different than us, then you come to this petition, hallowed be thy name. Well, the first thing you have to say is, God is holy. Hallowed is from the root, the verb, to show holiness, make holiness. It, it's to sanctify would be the same root. It, it, so what do you mean, hallowed be thy name? God's name is holy. <coughs> we can neither add to it nor subtract from it. He is completely different, and he does whatever he wants to, and he's in charge of your life, 
He's doing in your life what he wants to do. He's giving you the position where he wants to be. As J.R. Packer said, one of the things about prayer is you have to come to accept how God's shaped your existence. Everybody in this room has a little different existence. And it's easy to become unhappy with one's existence. But then when you do that, you are not hallowing God's name. You're saying, God, you didn't do it right. So, God is holy. We can't add to it or subtract from it. But what we can do is we can stand back in awe. And then, and then think about coming to him in prayer, number one, because, well, he is holy. And every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no shifting or variation. And so all the stuff you like, it came from God. Well, stuff you don't like came from God too. He's holy. And if he's the one who out of nothing just spoke and things came into being, then when you're in need, like the last half of the prayer suggests, then where can you go? What's impossible for men is possible for God. So Mary says, how can this be? Well, God can do anything. Our Father, who art in heaven, this is, I don't want to be crass, this is our dad. And he's begotten us. Can I remember what button to push? <laughs> and he is this holy, glorified, almighty. We can't take anything away from God's holiness. But when we name ourselves as a Christian, a follower of Christ, who's called the holy offspring of the Most High, Christ is also holy. When we say we're Christian, I follow Christ. And the world watches us. And we don't live up to righteousness. No, we're not showing God to be holy. We're saying we've got a better way. So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we're hardly praying, God, hey, uh, you know, make your name more holy. That can't be done. But we are praying something like, do something in this universe to show more of what you are. So, if I'm going to show more of the holiness of God, then God's got to change me. 
so that sin I cling to, I let go of. So when I say I'm a Christian, I don't do that anymore. When I judge other people, I let go of that because I want God's name to be known and seen as it is as holy. And so you can see, this is, this is the, if you will, the pinnacle of the prayer. Our Father. When Jesus arose from the dead, he said to Mary Magdalene, Go tell my disciples, I have not ascended yet to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. Our Father is the Holy One of the universe. He's all powerful, He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's gracious. He's kind. He has a holy wrath. He knows just how to discipline. We don't know how to do it just right, but He does. He's a good Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. So, the way we live can subtract from people sensing and viewing the holiness of God or the way we live can show off the holiness of God but we can't diminish it or increase it. He just is holy. Of course, the lost don't demonstrate the holiness of God. They're in rebellion against God. As Caleb's reminded us for the past two weeks, they have life and they can't even give thanks to God, but they turn aside from Him. They shun His holiness and they want to turn His holiness into darkness. He's a dark God. He's a mean God. He's not a loving God because after all, if He was a loving God, what about this, 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 and this? But lost people can come to Christ and begin to who demonstrate that God is is a holy God. And of course, one of the prayers is, and right at the pinnacle is, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Ah, when the kingdom is consummated, the name of God will be shown off holy in a way it's never been since sin entered the world. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ah! When the kingdom comes, there won't be any more sin or death or t crying or tears or fussing. No. Everything God wants will be done because the kingdom's come, because now his name is fully blazing in everyone's eyes that are in that kingdom holy stand with me Lord I confess that I am uh, taken aback by Murray McChain's statement.
as a man is on his knees before God. That's what he is and nothing more. I pray that as uh, we move towards Christmas and we think about the light coming into the world and we think about this prayer, that this prayer would become the model of the way we pray and we would start with the very fact that we're praying to our Father who loves his children, loves to give them good gifts, protects them from the evil one through discipline. What a great God we have. And so we pray knowing that this prayer means you will work on us. Hallowed be thy name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.